If you turn with me your copies of God's Word, we, we return to the Epistle to the Galatians. And so we are in Galatians chapter 3, and our reading begins at verse 15. That's Galatians chapter 3, and starting at the 15th verse. Hear once again the word of the living God. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet, if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say that the covenant which was that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. That's far the reading of God's word. Indeed, may he bless it to us richly this evening. Before we take up this epistle, uh, again, I would just like to draw your attention to a seminal moment in the history of the church. It's one I'm sure that you're quite familiar with, but it's one that really shows to us why the Galatian error, the, the heresy of the Judaizers, had gained such great traction. I want to take your minds back to Acts 10 to a vision that Peter had. You remember there that from heaven, a sheet was laid down with all manner of unclean foods, all manner of meats that were forbidden to the Jews. And the command that Peter was given in the vision three times was take and eat. Now, beloved, you you know, of course, that by extension, we can see in that text that the Lord was abrogating the entire ceremonial law. Well, we can't forget that in Acts 10, the meat there is not particularly looking at the dietary restrictions. The meat there is an analogy to help Peter think about Cornelius, whose servant is nearly at the door. You see, beloved, when you and I think about the heresy that's raging in Asia Minor that occasioned this epistle, I think we forget that the heresy had a real sense of plausibility to it. You see, these were Jews, and they lived among peoples who were just as vile, just as unclean in their own eyes, as the very meat they were forbidden to eat. And you would see in Scripture, if you just turn to Romans 1, that it's not entirely unfounded. You see the great darkness of the nations in which the creature was adored over the Creator. You see all the ways in which even natural relations had broken down. And the Jews saw all of this as a people who had had the word of God for millennia. They saw how different the nations were for themselves. 
And they saw out beyond their borders nothing but uncleanness, that which was detestable. You see, the Judaizers came along then when the preaching of the gospel went forth by the apostles, and they said simply this, It's all well and good that the Gentiles are being called, but surely they need to reform themselves and become more like Jews and look less and less like the nations. That was the point behind enforcing the ceremonial law. The idea was that after they had reformed themselves, after they had, of course, addicted themselves to the ceremonial code, then they had a place, they had a standing by which they could receive the warrant of the gospel. It was their keeping these external forms that that would enable them to lay hold of the grace of Christ. They simply needed to reform their externals. And then, and then they could receive freely from Christ the grace that was proffered. And to all of that, beloved, the apostle says pointedly, such preaching is no gospel. Such preaching is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of God. And beloved, that is the point of this epistle. The point of this epistle is to demonstrate again and again, no matter how much the natural man stumbles at it, that the only grace that men receive through Christ is free grace. As we look at this text, our our portion this evening continues an argument that was begun just verses before. But in verse 15, the apostle begins an argument, again, very much analogous to the lines previous, but... He takes upon it himself a different form. This is the form of a syllogism. What you see here in verses 15 to 18 is a very simple, very straightforward form of argumentation. A syllogism is simply an argument of three parts. You have a major premise, a minor premise, and a conclusion. Uh, To give you a very brief example, the major premise is always a general truth, such as all men are mortal. The minor premise is something in which there's a, pers- a particular instantiation of something related to that major premise. And so we could say that, well, Socrates is a man. The conclusion is the entailment, holding those two things together. The inference being, as all men are mortal and Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. The apostle does precisely the same kind of thing in our text this evening. The major premise is given to us in verse 15. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant. Yet, if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. The major premise, the general principle that he draws down on, is the idea that we all know, even among ourselves, that as soon as a covenant or a testament is established, as soon as it is ratified, the document binds, and binds in such a way that it cannot be altered. That's the general principle. The principle is ratified covenants are themselves unalterable. But then we come to the minor premise, the particular instantiation that Paul has in mind, and that's in verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, 
which was 400 years and 30 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. You see what the apostle is saying? He's saying it quite pointedly. There was a covenant made with Abraham. And that covenant was itself ratified. And if it was ratified, it could not be disannulled by any subsequent change. He continues that same line of argument in verse 18. And really, this is the application of the whole to his broader argument. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. The conclusion is this gracious covenant cannot be replaced by the law. It cannot be disannulled. It's a very simple, it's a very straightforward argument. But one of the most striking elements of this argument is what the apostle doesn't say. As I've said to you already, the Judaizing heresy very much concerned the ceremonial law. And you would expect at this point that the apostle then would be dealing primarily with the fact that the Judaizers had mistaken the purpose of that ceremonial law. You would almost expect at this point that the apostle would, would, would launch into a discussion about how the law was merely a type and a shadow to lead us to think of Christ and his redemptive work. But the apostle doesn't do that here in this place. And that's significant, friend, because in this moment we're reminded the apostle is dealing, of course, yes, with a very specific heresy, but he's dealing with general and first principles mainly. Yes, this pertains to the Judaizers. Yes, this has, of course, very concrete applications to the controversy at hand. But the truth of the matter is, the apostle here is far more interested in dealing with what really is at the root of the matter. There's a natural bent in the Judaizer, as there is in every fallen human breast, to conflate the two, law and grace. And so the apostle takes us to basic and first principles, not to cut down that tree, but to uproot it and to salt the earth so that it wouldn't grow again. The apostle in this text then shows us in its most basic sense and in its greatest principles that the gospel cannot be mixed with legalism. The gospel cannot be mixed with legalism. And briefly this evening, friend, I want us to think about this as he brings it to us in two terms. I want us to consider the essence of this gospel, how it shows clearly that it's absolutely antinomous to legalism. And then I want us to see as well as exclusivity, that the only kind of grace that is offered is that that which is freely offered and apprehended in Christ alone by faith. And so I want us to take the essence of this gospel that is preached, and it's communicated to us very basically. The terminology is quite, quite familiar to us. The gospel here is simply called promise. And that really is the, the gospel in its totality. It's a catchphrase, if you will, that really encompasses all the promises that are made to those who are united to Christ. And if we extend our, our memories back just a bit, if we go back to the beginning of chapter 3, you remember that the apostle has already begun an argument particularly tied to Abraham and the benefit that he received. And, and so when we think of the promise, we should be thinking broadly in those terms. All that was promised to the faithful, like faithful Abraham in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the apostle has in view. 
And he tells us there as well, to Abraham and his seed were these promises made. Abraham is the recipient. But as we look at this text, you'll notice that the apostle in verse 16 makes quite a lot, quite a lot of the word seed. I want you to notice at verse 16 that he prosecutes an argument that's quite, quite staggering. He says, in this promise he saith not, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. We understand, I think, clearly what it means for Abraham to be recipient of a gracious promise. What the apostle is saying here is that the seed that's in view that received this promise with Abraham is Christ Jesus. Not Christ mystical, but Christ personal, who in verse 17 will be the one in whom the covenant is ratified. Now, What do we make of that? What do we make of it that Christ and Abraham were recipients of this promise? I think Calvin is quite helpful here. He says thus, he says, Jesus Christ has no need of any of the promises which were formerly made to our fathers and which continue to this day. Yet as our covenant head, he has accepted them. In other words, what this text holds out to us then is that Abraham received these as the one who himself was a member of the church under a covenant head. But Christ received this as the singular seed, as he who would be the head of his people, his body, the church. And as you look at this text and you come down then to verse 17, the apostle continues his thinking of Christ and he does so in, again, another very profound way. He says, this promise was confirmed before of God in Christ. And so, beloved, in this text, it's staggering, isn't it? You have a clear picture, a clear picture that Christ is the substance of that gospel, that promise. As covenant head, he has received that promise. And then staggeringly, because, of course, he is covenant mediator, all of this covenant is found ratified in him. I believe it's very easy for us to overlook the emphasis the apostle places here. But we do so to our own detriment. The gospel that the apostle is preaching is one that is inextricably and at every point tethered to the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostle cannot think of an aspect of the gospel that does not have an immediate connection with the Savior. Not a single component in this text, not a single component can be named that is not immediately tied to him. And so, beloved, as we look at this, the essence of this gospel very simply is this, that its substance and its agent is Christ. Always Christ. And so, beloved, as we look at this text, the apostle is giving to us a very clear picture of that gospel of free grace, it being the gospel that preaches that sinners must be united to this Christ. That there is no saving benefit, no saving benefit communicated to them without being found in Him, without being likewise tethered to Him. And so, beloved, you remember, of course, words that we often repeat. 
How the apostle describes this elsewhere. He says, all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him, amen. The idea is, beloved, that as the apostle thinks and prosecutes this argument about the gospel, he says every single element in it is tied to him. You say, Pastor, you're belaboring the point. I'm belaboring the point because it's something that we often, I think, speak of, but very rarely think much on. When the apostle, when the apostle here says that the covenant promises that Abraham received were confirmed, or the word in the original is ratified, ratified in Christ. The meaning is this, that there is no benefit that Abraham could there expect, but as he stood united to Christ. There was no good thing, no saving benefit that he could expect, but out, but only in this union. That's the apostle's point. And we'll see how this, of course, applies to the Judaizer, but allow me just to step back for a moment. Beloved, that has vast implications for you and me, doesn't it? Of course, with regard to our justification, as the Apostle puts it in Ephesians 1, this means that that we are accepted by God, but only as we are in the Beloved. Our justification is, is not the procuring cause of our benefits. It's our union with Christ that procures our acceptance with God. We are accepted in the Beloved, says the Apostle. And with regard to our sanctification, I mean, beloved, again, the apostle is so clear, isn't he? God is working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. And so just briefly in those two texts, you have a compendium of those saving benefits that you and I look to and enjoy in this life. Namely, justification before the bar of heaven and the promise of continued sanctification in this life. And all we're told is only if we are bound to him. No benefit outside of our union with him. I want you to notice that the apostle is clear. There is no dealing with God here as God absolute. Abraham did not deal with God as God absolute. That is God without a mediator. No, Abraham, says the apostle so very clearly, could only have such dealings with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And to come to the point that the apostle is warming to, that we'll see in just a moment, for the Judaizer, this has incredible implications, does it not? For the legalist, this has incredible implications. The apostle is saying, if you have anything of your own, anything outside of this union, there is no benefit you may expect. It can procure you no good. If all good that Abraham enjoyed, if all good that the church was promised is only in him, anything outside of him can expect from the Lord no good thing. Friend, as you look at this text, we should marvel that here the apostle is pointing to Abraham. He's doing so, of course, to deal with the Judaizing heresy directly. He could have gone back to Adam in many ways, but but he deals with Abraham to show very pointedly that, that even the Gentiles can be possessed of the like blessing as Abraham was possessed of. But notice, friend, that what the apostle is also doing at the same time. 
He's reminding us that the holiest of saints, the most godly of the church, only stood before God as they were in Christ. We marvel at the faith. We marvel at the obedience. We marvel at the great measures of sanctification we behold in great ones. Beloved, here the apostle reminds us clearly they were still only accepted in Christ. But that brings us to our second point and our final this evening. The essence of the gospel is, of course, Christ himself, as he's tender to sinners clothed with those free offers. But it is also exclusive. It is exclusively a gospel of free grace. And that really is the conclusion that we find in verse 18 where the apostle says pointedly, if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. What's throughout this, throughout this argument very clear is the apostle is dealing with antinomies. These things are mutually exclusive. You either receive the promise by free grace through Christ alone, or you receive no good thing from God. That's always the law that's in front of us in chapter 3. But as you look at this text, what's staggering is, as you move through it, the apostle simply doesn't say that it will do you no good. He says pointedly in verse 17, that the law would otherwise disannul, break, invalidate that covenant. In other words, if the law could be employed to procure man's standing before God, here the apostle says it would be as though the covenant made with Abraham had been disannulled, as though it had been invalidated. That's striking language. It's striking language that, of course, we've already encountered. As you turn to chapter 2, verse 21, chapter 3, verse 4, again, verse 17 of our text, the apostle uses like phrases. The idea of frustrating the gospel, the gospel being vain, the covenant in this case being disannulled. The apostle points to them very pointedly and says, if, if you are correct, if you are correct, the covenant of grace has been invalidated. It's a staggering thing to say. But in this 18th verse, the apostle anticipates something of a Judaizer's objection. And we can't miss that either. I've told you several times now that when we think of this epistle, it's very tempting for us to think that that we're dealing with people who are thinking that they could always and of themselves alone stand before God based on their own merits. And that was not what the Judaizers were saying. The Judaizers were really saying that that man must reform himself to a certain extent, i.e. keeping the ceremonial law, And then he would take hold of the grace that he needs in Christ. In other words, it was a mixed covenant. It was the covenant of works mixed with the covenant of grace. It wasn't the covenant of works on its own. That was the Judaizers' contention. We're not denying grace. We're simply, as it were, augmenting it. But That's why this 18th verse is so crucial. The apostle says pointedly, there is no possible mixture in these things. Again, to direct your attention to these mutually exclusive phrases, if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. 
And so, friend, you and I are reminded here clearly that we either receive grace freely in Christ or we don't receive it at all. That's the Apostle's point. We either receive it freely or we don't receive it at all. Now, Christian, as we think of this text and as we warm to a close, the application of these things to us is quite straightforward, isn't it? For you and for me, the first question we can ask of ourselves is, what do we think of our good works? How do we get there? Well, friend, you see what the Judaizers were saying. They were saying that there was some virtue, some virtue before God in their own exertions and reformings. They had that high an esteem of their own goodness. And so, friend, if we're going to apply this text appropriately, we have to ask ourselves that question, how highly do we esteem our good works? If we're listening to what the apostle has said, especially what he said in the verses preceding, that everything is founded in Christ, ratified in Christ, he's the substance of this gospel, then you and I, well, friend, you and I have to look at even our best deeds with the utmost humility. If we have any emotions of real spiritual life, well, friend, the apostle's words to us are quite pertinent. What hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now, if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory? As if thou hadst not received it. That's the principle of grace in the man who, who doesn't esteem his good works for himself. He doesn't see in them anything that's meritorious. And in fact, if he sees any reality of grace, he attributes it to the covenant, to the one to whom he's united by faith. And so how highly do you esteem your good works? The second question that comes from this too is how gracious are you? And how humble are you? This is a searching question, beloved, but it's a crucial one. Because the apostles painted a picture for us that demands the utmost humility and charity from those who receive it. I mean, you see what the apostle is saying. He's saying that we are, we are those who inherit the blessings of God's children through Christ. You receive it in him. And the idea there is this, that you and I, we walk into a mansion. We sit at a table furnished. We enjoy all of the pleasures and all of the provisions of an inheritance that was not ours by nature. That we were brought into by free grace. And so, friend, what kind of humility, what kind of humility becomes the Christian? Knowing that the least benefit you receive was at Christ's expense and is yours only by God's free benevolence in him. And then, friend, to, to warm to a close with the text that we read in Luke 7. You remember Simon's response to the woman, washing, washing Christ's feet with her tears, with ointment, anointing his head, kissing his feet. 
Simon, in this case, has no real interest in the sinner going to, going to Christ for grace, does he? And the, and the way the Lord responds to that is so helpful, isn't it? He says, Simon, and really, you understand he's saying, Simon, if you would have seen yourself indeed as the great sinner that you are, then surely you would understand. Surely you would not cast aspersions on this woman or on her actions. You see, the Christian who receives this grace, the the person who is touched with the Apostle's argument in our text this evening, will acknowledge very clearly that they only have it of free grace. They have been forgiven so much. And so their disposition to others will only be increasingly charitable. Their humility before God and before men always be increasing. And beloved, as we close, this text just does remind us, as the whole argument is really founded upon Christ, that the gospel that we have before us is a saving, a saving truth. Because the Lord has said, I have laid help upon one that is mighty. I have exalted one chosen out of the people. Christ would stand as an able and sufficient mediator for all sinners. And to go back to where we began, friend, the implication for the Judaizers was to be this, that Christ could take the most vile of the Gentiles. He could do so without having any crutch, without having any effort on the, other, on the part of the sinner to reform himself. And Christ himself, by freely applying this gospel, could make him a saint. The sinner needed to go to Christ. And beloved, that is the scandal of the gospel to the natural man. But it is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. Amen.